All right. Welcome back to God's Word During Exile. This is a podcast, uh, and right now we are studying through the book of Revelation. And so we're happy that you are all able to make it here with us and join the party as we study God's Word together. Uh, We find ourselves um, on the third chapter, the very end of the third chapter of Revelation. And we're going to read verses 14 through 22 today. And then um, next week, we're going to have a special guest on the podcast, aren't we? Oh, yeah. I think we are. Yes, we are. Well, if we have enough time to get together with him this week and record. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I was actually going to say, how long ago did we record it? October, right? October. Like three months ago, we had planned. Remember the time where we got together, guys, and we like wrote out a whole plan of how like (laughs) we're gonna go and stuff. Mm -hmm. And now I would say we're a solid, um, we're a solid three months behind. But the reason why we're behind isn't because we've been slacking, but because we've been digging into the crunchier stuff of God's word, and I think that. Our listeners, I mean, you can stop me if if I'm wrong and feel free to comment. We would love to see you guys comment. Um, but I think that as we've poured into it um, and really dug down into God's word, I think that there's been a lot of like nuggets that we've been able to find, kind of like an archaeologist. I think we found a, a lot of decent stuff as we've decided to dig in a little bit deeper. And so uh, today we find ourselves at the last church letter, and it is to Laodicea, which I've been trying to think of like cool ways in order to pronounce it, Um, and I haven't figured one out yet, but I'm sure that as you guys are talking, I'll post it in the comments and just totally blow the roof off of things. So, uh, so we'll see how it goes. Um, I'm, I'm just going to go at it again. Cause I know people love it. I'm going to say, um, uh, this is my cussy up over here and this is Ben, uh, Baker right here. And then next to me over here is uh, Matt Nelson. That's what I'm going to go with today. Uh, and we'll see if I got it right. I'm sure that Mike, uh, would just lie to me and tell me that I got it right. When in fact it would be completely wrong. So, <laughs> Which, what's really interesting is that his uh, his attitude right now of just whatever kind of tells me maybe I got it right and he just wants to play with me uh, and make me listen to the beginning of the podcast. So we'll see how it goes. Um, we're happy that you were able to join us. And um, so, yeah, next week, be prepared. Did we do – we did like a little intro with him, right? Where we mm-hmm. kind of told people who he was. Okay, great. Yeah. So we don't have to worry about that today. Um, but yeah, tune in. We're hoping that we'll have some more guests too moving ahead. Um, and so be sure to uh, listen to next week's episode with our special guest. All right. Um, ben, you want to open us in prayer? Sure. Okay. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, once again that we can uh, get together and dig into your word. Um, and we just ask that, uh, you would be at work and helping us and all who are listening and, and watching to, uh, really understand what you have written here in this, 
uh, sometimes confusing book. And we just ask that, um, as always, you would point us to Christ and the and confession of our sin and the forgiveness that we have in him. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Revelation chapter 3, we're going to read 14 through the end of the chapter. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version in Jesus' name. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And to and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, so we are uh, talking about the church in Laodicea here. And uh, Laodicea was a, was a prosperous city, um, <clears throat> filled with a, a lot of different traders. Um, their, their major deity there, the, the god that was most often worshipped, was, uh, was Zeus. Um, we also had an emperor worship cult going on there and stuff too, right? Uh, they were kind of known for, uh, for all of <laughs> Yeah, we had a visitor. I was, I was actually, trying to hold it together, I was, man. <laughs> I was actually going to ask. I was like, is somebody vacuuming? Yeah. That sounds amazing. Yeah, no, we have, uh, the, we have the cleaners here. So, uh, yeah, they came in through Ben's office. I had my front door locked. <laughs> why, why don't one of you guys continue about this city? I'm going to mute my mic till the vacuum is done. <laughs> That's great. Nice. <laughs> All right. It's, it's not. We need to bring this thing back. So, what do we know about the the church? Um, does anybody else have any other things to share um, about the church itself? Uh, well, Laodicea was a pretty wealthy town. They had a lot of sheep and, and produced a lot of wool um, and whatnot. Um, was I forget what, if Mike already said this or not, but they had temples to Zeus and to Caesar uh, there as well. Um, and an interesting aspect of Laodicea that will come up in just a little bit is they didn't really have access to good water. They were kind of, you know, six miles or so from their source of water. So they had to pipe it into the city. And so, you know, whether it started out cold or, or hot, you know, it kind of not turn out so great. So they were built there for the purpose of commerce being on a lot of trade routes, but that was one thing that they lacked was access to good water. They also were known for a medical school there. 
and um, and they had uh, some medicines that they were known for, uh, ointments for eyes and ears. And so, um, interesting to think about how all of that ties in, and that picture that Ben was talking about that is used the metaphor of hot and cold. Uh, that's referenced later in the letter, maybe we should understand to have some kind of medicinal uh, connection too with the, that emphasis in the city or being known for that. All right, so I think that's the letter of Laodicea. I was slightly distracted. <laughs> we did mention that it was like a, a it's so much wealth that it became like a banking hub too, right? Oh, I don't. I don't, think they, I don't think we mentioned that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's a, a you know a, a lot of banking and a lot of wealth. Very 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 prosperous place. Um, so the people of Laodicea would have seen themselves as is very privileged, and they probably would have had more than most of the other communities that these letters were written to. And then we get a description of Jesus, um, and these words about Jesus once again are not word from word from chapter one. So it's another one of those letters where it's, it differs a little bit. And it starts off with Jesus calling himself the Amen, right? Um, I don't know. Maybe most times we don't even think about what Amen means. It's just the way we end, end a prayer. Like, I don't know. When I was a kid, I thought Amen meant goodbye or something like that. But what, is, what does it mean that Jesus is the Amen? We might see in some of your other translations that um, that depending on which one you're looking at, the amen could be translated different ways. Like uh, you would notice it in the gospels when Jesus is talking and he might open up by saying, amen, amen, or he might say, truly, truly, or verily, verily. Uh, those are some of the different ways we've talked about it, but the word amen or amen uh, is, um, is like uh, saying yes, or let it be so, or, but there's a sense of truth to it. Um, also though, we recognize that it's often used at the end too. We use it at the end of prayers. I think there might be um, even some sense of that, that Jesus being the end of all things too, with this title. I don't know, what, what do you guys think? Oh, well, the, the word amen is a, you know, it's a Hebrew word, amen, comes from, you know, aman, to be faithful or true. And so that would, you know, coincide with what you were saying there, Matt. And so, so aside, when we say amen to something, we are saying this is, this is true. This is faithful. You know, this is, um, yeah, this is truth. So if Jesus is the capital A, amen, he is the one who is true. He is the one who is faithful. And so it's kind of, I don't know, I suppose that, that faithful and true witness would kind of tie into explaining what it means to be the amen, that Jesus is the, he is the, the true one, the faithful one, the faithful and true witness of God. Well, the next part of the description about Jesus after that faithful and true witness, it says that he's the beginning of God's creation. Now, I have heard people read this verse before and take it as proof that Jesus was the first created being. Um, but that's, that's not exactly what John is saying, right? The beginning of God's creation doesn't mean that Jesus was just the first and best created thing. 
Right. So this would be the way it's being used here. It's the Greek word arche. It'd be more along the lines of source of God's creation. So that would fit in very well with uh, John chapter one, when he says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then he goes on to say how nothing that God created was created apart from that word. And so Jesus is active in, in creation, um, in our, you know, we could say first creation in a sense of the, the physical and natural world, but it also carries over to that Jesus is the source of new creation as well as it is uh, his life, death and resurrection on behalf of sinners that makes possible um, our new lives and us as new creatures in Christ. So not Jesus as the first of God's creation, but the source of creation and new creation. And then we get to the words of Jesus there in 15. I know your works. You know, a couple weeks ago, that was like my mom saying, I know what you did. Last week, it was less so. Uh, And this week, once again, it's uh, I know what you did. You should you should cower and hide. It's bad news bears. Right. No. Jesus says, well, it seems like things have really escalated to the point where now they're getting a pretty strong rebuke here. Yeah, this is the certainly the harshest letter to the churches. So Jesus says, you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, I know there are a lot of takes on this cold and hot part, right? Uh, a lot of people have seen it and understand it and have taught it in, very, in various ways. But how should we understand Jesus's words? You know, I know you're neither cold nor hot, and I wish that you were one of them, rather than just being bleh. Um, uh, can, you do, can you do that one more time? Rather than <laughs> what? Bleh. All right, sweet. I, I just want to make sure front. we got a we got a clear <laughs> snippet of that, so that if your youth group kids or anybody wants to like either take a voice memo of it or make that a gif, they they could do that. So they totally you. should. Yeah, yeah they, they totally should. should. Yep. Well, I I wonder if we should talk about some of the popular ways that this has been interpreted and some of the issues with it, because um, I think that that this is really important. Um, I know a couple of you guys shared some things um, as we were prepping for this. Do you guys want to say anything about maybe how you were taught this growing up or? Yeah, sure. Um, I can, yeah, I can share that. So usually when, when this passage is shared about being lukewarm or you not wanting to be lukewarm, which is neither hot nor cold, it, it really stems from a Christian who is not doing enough stuff he's they're not they're not proving themselves to be a christian you know and hopefully by now our listeners uh have really been um smothered or lavished with the idea of you're saved by grace and not by your works but a lot of times when we talk about this legalism we think that okay well lukewarm would be the equivalent of a person who believes in Christ but isn't doing enough stuff or uh, thinks that they're a believer but really aren't. And so then we would attribute the hot or cold. The hot would be good, 
at least the way that I was taught it when I was younger. The hot is good. You want to be hot. You want to be on fire for the Lord. You want to be doing stuff for God. You want to, you want it to be so noticeable by other people that they're like, wow, look at this, look at this individual. They are on fire for the Lord. And so then we look at that and it's like, okay, well, the opposite of hot is cold. Therefore, cold must, must be bad. All right. If lukewarm is in the middle, we look at it as like a, uh, a flow of hot on one side, cold on the other side, lukewarm in the middle. And so if hot is the best, cold is the worst. And you don't want to be cold um, because cold means you don't even believe in the Lord whatsoever. And so that's kind of the way that I was taught. But then from this passage, it brings up the question of, well, is God telling us that it's okay to be cold because cold is better than being lukewarm. And so I've always kind of had a question about that. And that's the way that I was taught. So before we go on to the way that we are going to pitch to you guys, uh, I'll let anybody else kind of jump in and share what they've experienced with this passage. So then the, just to kind of complete that picture you were drawing there, Mike, the cold being the opposite of on fire for Jesus, it would be like, you got a cold, cold, icy heart. Yeah. Right? You know, like unbelieving. Like almost like Pharaoh's heart. I almost, I, I think growing up, I, I remember somebody comparing the heart of Pharaoh to the cold that, that they're talking about here in revelation, which would the language, the parallel language in scripture would be hardened heart then. Right. True. Yep. Yeah, I grew up with a really similar understanding of this being taught to me. You know, that the cold is, is definitely those people that have rejected Christ. They're hard. Um, the hot is those people who are doing all the things for Jesus and really love God and have really, I don't know, in a lot of ways done enough stuff to earn God's favor and make God happy with them. And then you had all the lukewarm Christians where they, they believed and trusted and had faith but they just didn't really do enough stuff to make, make God really happy with them. So it was a very like, the way I was taught it growing up, it was a very legalistic thing. Like your works, what you do is going to determine your salvation and whether or not you get God's favor and his love and, and stuff like that. And so then the response to all of this that's expected or that that's, this produces is, man, I'm not on fire enough for Jesus. I, I don't love God enough. I am not, um, I'm not hot enough. I need to be hotter. Right. Yep. And, and there's this sense then that God is just really dissatisfied with you. And that even if you're believing in God and asking forgiveness, if you're not feeling like successful, passionate on fire, you know, contagious Christian, sharing your faith with everybody, you could just feel like God wants to spit you out of his mouth, right? And and you feel like you have to change that situation. And, and here's sort of the deal with that, Matt, right? You, we, we never can be hot enough, right? We can never be on fire enough. We're always going to be lukewarm. That's kind of the truth of it. So when, you, when you're taught it that way and you, you grow to believe it and you start looking at your life, you're left with one of two things, right? You're either going to lie to yourself and be like, I'm the most on fire Christian ever. God's happy. Or you're, you're going to be like, I'm pretty sure I'm going to hell and I can't change it. 
So why even care? Yeah. And you were sharing some things uh, earlier with us about uh, some problems with understanding the metaphor that way. I don't know if you want to share those with the listeners. Yeah. So if we kind of go with that, you know, idea that's been pretty common that hot is good, cold is bad. You have a very strange, you know, statement from Jesus then, because he says, you know, would that you be cold or hot? Right. And so if hot is good and cold is bad, why in the world we would wonder, would Jesus wish that one would be unbelieving and hostile to him? If that's what cold means, as opposed to hot means, you know, believing in Jesus and being, you know, all those other things. Why would Jesus wish that? I mean, scripture clearly tells us that Jesus desires the salvation of all people, you know, as St. Paul writes to to Timothy, you know, that God desires all to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. There is no part of God that desires and wants sinners to be damned. And so it doesn't make any biblical sense to understand it in this way. It puts us, uh, kind of puts us in a real sticky spot because then really what you end up with too, is that it's better, you know, so according to that understanding, then Jesus is saying, it's better to reject me altogether than to be lukewarm. And and that's just insanity. I mean, think about it. That would essentially be saying it'd be better for you to never come to faith in Christ and to reject him completely than to have the, than to come to faith in him and have the possibility of being lukewarm and, and spewed out. Cause that's in this, in this kind of a setup, the worst is to be somewhere in the middle. And so if you're going to, you know, if you become a Christian, but then you, you know, slide into lukewarmness well that's worse for you than if you had just rejected jesus altogether that that seems crazy to me and and doesn't make much uh biblical sense um because again jesus does not desire that anyone be hostile toward him so so he's really he's not saying i wish that you either believed or didn't that's not what he's talking about um and, and that doesn't, you know, and if we look at the context and we understand what, what Jesus is saying here through the Apostle John, that, doesn't, that interpretation doesn't fit the context very well either. So if we just can take a look at it here, the, Jesus is using you know, a metaphor about water, right? So this, so this goes back to, you know, Laodicea is like, what did it say? Something like six miles from the nearest water source, right? And um, so you're piping in all that water, whether it, whether it starts out hot or it starts out cold, by the time it gets to Laodicea, I mean, they don't have, you know, like super cooled pipes or, you know, whatnot to keep the, the hot water flowing that far and the cold water cold as it goes, it's going to, you know, the sun is going to come down and it's going to warm it up or, or it's going to lose heat as it goes. And it ends up just kind of, you know, Luke, warmy water right so if we think about that if we think that it's all about water that's what this metaphor is working with well we know that hot water has various uses to it um you know we can sterilize and clean things with hot water right we can um you know make coffee and and tea and whatnot with hot water you wouldn't want to use lukewarm water for that stuff you know and hot cold, chocolate you know hot chocolate yeah. 
you know, cold water is refreshing and, and replenishes the body. It's nice to drink. It's, it's profitable, right? But lukewarm water, there's really no use for it. it it's not good to drink. It doesn't clean anything. It's just blah. Right, so it it'd be very. You can think of it in a similar way as when Jesus speaks to his uh, his disciples and to the church, and he says, "You are the salt of the earth." But if salt has lost its saltiness, what good is it? Right. If if salt has lost, you know, that which makes it salt, that which makes it uh, useful and profitable in that in that sense, what's its worth? Cast it out. And so that's that's what what Jesus is getting at here. That hot water is good and cold water is good. They have their beneficial uses. They have their, their purposes and they're useful, but lukewarm water isn't good for anything. And so it's going to be cast out um, in judgment. And um, if we back up one step with, with that uh, common understanding that, that cold is opposed to Christ and hostile to Christ and hot is believing in Christ and lukewarm is, is somewhere in the middle. Um, it almost, you know, again, along with that idea that it kind of gives the idea that it'd be better to be cold than to be, you know, against Jesus than to be lukewarm. But in the, in the end, what, what Jesus is really saying here, the, the lukewarmness, the complacency, that which is not useful, neither hot nor cold, ends up in the same place as those who are hostile to Christ. So let's, let's have, you know, no confusion about that. Those who are opposed to Christ, who refuse to believe in him, you know, that is carried through until the end, their destination is hell and the judgment of God. And the same is true for those who are lukewarm. Um, that is their destination. It's not. So I don't know if that makes sense. So anyways, hot is good. Cold is good. Lukewarm is bad. That's the, that's the, the water metaphor we're looking for here. And we don't want to push it too far. Um, we don't want to create a continuum or a spectrum out of it. Um, we don't even want to go so far as to say, this is what it looks like to be hot. And this is what it looks like to be cold. But the point is simply hot water is good and profitable. Cold water is good and profitable. Lukewarm water is only good for spitting out. Is that yeah. makes sense? Um, just to, um, reinforce this a little bit. Um, we got some really good help on this from commentary by Beale on revelation. He mentions that, uh, with the hot water picture that there was hot waters in Hierapolis that had a medicinal effect. And maybe you can think of, uh, um, you know, some of like the natural hot springs and things that people go to that, you know, heal their bodies. And, and so that could be part of the picture too, you know, a medicinal effect um, or, you know, maybe a hot toddy. I don't know if you guys ever heard of those. I've never had one, but I heard the, some medicinal value to that hot drink. Um, but then there, you know, the, there was also cold, you know, pure drinkable water from Colossae um, back then. So these would be things that might've been on the mind of the original audience that they would have understood this metaphor this particular way. But then with Laodicea there, the, by the time the water got to them, it was, it was lukewarm, but also apparently it caused nausea for the people. And so it wasn't just distasteful. It was, uh, you know, really upsetting their stomachs and stuff. So um, you could see why they would just want to spit it out. 
Um, and so then, you know, the picture could be though maybe helpful that um, the Lord doesn't want us to be, you know, unpalatable, not only to himself, but probably to those around us that we are called to love and serve and witness to. Um, but uh, also, uh, you know, as Christians, because we're talking about our works here, right? He was critiquing the works in verse 15 of the Laodicean church. Um, thinking about it in that way, then their, their works of being hot or cold, they could be seen then as works that God has called us to, to be of medicinal effect of healing people around us, helping them, um, serving them, you know, loving our neighbor, but also uh, the, that drinkable, refreshing, cold water with the life-giving effect that, you know, that's something that God wants to do through us too. He wants to refresh the people around us and ultimately um, with the gospel, right? That we would come to them with that life-giving water of Jesus. Um, and that's what we're called to do. That's the life of a Christian. And the life of a Christian is not to just sit back on your haunches and, and, uh, and keep what you were given. Um, and and that, that posture is not only selfish and not loving our neighbors and giving to them, serving them, but it, it has a really bad effect on us spiritually, I believe, where we start to become really apathetic and then we don't listen to the word of God and we don't heed it. And then I think we stop repenting and, and we, because we're not concerned anymore. We're not living on a mission with a purpose. We're not really um, embracing God's call and commission to the world. And, and uh, that's usually a sign that we haven't been receiving his word in other ways uh, in repentance and faith. And, and uh, we kind of just stop caring, start coasting through life, um, stop heeding God's word and, and then we don't, uh, we're not as bothered by our sins anymore either. And, and all of this leads us down a very dangerous path where not only are we not helping other people, but we're putting ourselves in a really bad spiritual predicament where we might get spit out of God's mouth. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Matt, I, I don't say this to make you feel self-conscious about what you just said, but mainly because I'm genuinely curious. I saw Mike Hussey yawn during while you were talking. And so that brought up to me if Scott Sconis has – so he didn't even listen. No, no, he didn't. Okay. Well, right. he may have listened, but he didn't get a hold of me, so. Okay. You lose, Scott Sconis. You lose. <laughs> no, it's too late now, buddy. Listen to last now. week's episode. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So that's – as I was saying, that's what uh, – that's what we're dealing with here. Jesus is addressing the sin of, of apathy, of complacency, uh, both, you know, um, in regard to our own sin and need for forgiveness and also uh, with our calling to be witnesses of the gospel um, and to share that life-giving word of God with those around us. And so, you know, to, to basically be coasting along, not really caring about, you know, your own sin or, caring about whether, you know, other people need, you know, your, your good works to serve them or, you know, need to hear the gospel that they may come to faith in Christ. Um, that's very much then akin to salt losing its saltiness. 
right um and so the end result is a is a terrifying thing that jesus would spit you out of his mouth and so it's a it's a wake-up call that jesus is giving to the church here shake to shake them out of their complacency to wake them up to uh their sinfulness that they would repent um and believe again in the gospel and be forgiven and to be uh useful servants in that regard um you know that have a a message of you know forgiveness to proclaim to the sinners their fellow sinners around them that have you know good works to be done in in faith and serving their neighbor um and so you know not to to again depress the metaphor too far but you think about the idea of being lukewarm what what would need to happen for that lukewarm water to be useful it would need to be what like heated up and made hot water or cooled down and made cold water right and and so if we're you know we can be comforted that this is the whole reason why Jesus is giving this stern warning and condemnation that you would be roused from your complacency by his word and by his grace made again, hot water and cold water, useful servants in his kingdom to proclaim, you know, his mercy and grace and serve our neighbors. And so it's all really about repentance and faith. Surprise, surprise. Um, so. <laughs> That's a, I mean, it's a good warning for us each and every day, right? Because if we're being honest, just like I said before, you're never being a, a useful enough tank engine, right? You're never being hot enough. You're never being cold enough to, to, to you know, be acceptable. But even those feeble things become acceptable in Christ. And so every day um, you know, we're called to repent, to confess our sins and, and believe again in all that Christ did with his perfect life and sacrificial death and, and trust and believe that it's enough for us. Um, good Mike, stuff, you guys. hinted at it. You hinted at it. Do you want to talk about Thomas the Tank Engine? No. Like you did multiple times during prep. I love I, Thomas the Tank Engine. It's great. I heard you talk about being a useful engine. Yeah. So I wasn't I mean, sure if you wanted to bring up Thomas. Watch, no, watch a couple episodes. You'll see for sure. Like it's all about Thomas being a useful tank engine. <laughs> Which is, you know, it's a perfect example for the legalism and moralism. So you're saying <laughs> that w the point of all of this is that we don't need to, uh, we need, we don't need to become more useful to, to be acceptable to God. I guess the point is you you can't earn your salvation. <laughs> I I also think that that there's the realm of sanctification in this in terms of that God is going to make you more useful and more helpful. Yeah. You know it's not it's not us trying to be more useful and helpful, but just being receptive that the Lord is literally going to do that through the work of sanctification. He's going to make you more useful. And helpful. Yeah, and along along with that too, there certainly is an intentionality there on the part of the Christian to um, to do God's will, to preach the gospel, to live according to His law. And yes, yes, we fail. Yes, we need to be you know forgiven each and every day. But but we aren't completely passive in that sanctification aspect. So you know we do act as well. So it is it is then also a call to Christians to be Christians and be intentional about it as well don't just say ah whatever doesn't matter no, it doesn't matter so mm -hmm. be intentional about it when you fail confess your sins be forgiven 
and go be intentional about it again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and the word and spirit of God, they they sanctify us by leading us to repentance, right? And to live in forgiveness and sharing that with other people. And and so as a Christian, then we if if we are being led by the word and spirit of God, then we will be led into repentance to the forgiveness of our sins and then to go live in that, share that with everybody else every day. All right. Well, any more thoughts on that uh, metaphor of Jesus about uh, the hot and cold water and lukewarm? Should we move on to the next, the next bit? The next bit should be encouragement, right? That's what we're waiting for. For you, Ooh, say. There's a doozy still coming up here. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus isn't done. <laughs> For you, say, I'm rich. I've prospered. I, I need nothing. Not realizing you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. We'll pick up all those, those things in the beginning. Let's talk about that first statement in 17. You say, I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. Uh, this is especially true of this church in Laodicea because they're in such a prosperous place. They've got all the banking, they got the sheep, all the special wool, they've got cash, they have more, you know, material goods than probably any of the other churches that we've, we've dealt with so far. They've got everything and they need nothing. But Jesus says, nope, you're not even close. What does he mean calling them wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked? Sounds mean, Jesus. And he pulls no punches, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he exposes them as they really are, right? And it's really easy for us in our in our sinfulness and in our sinful pride to kind of cover ourselves up. Like, you know, we're really we are very much blind to our own sins and flaws, and we think that we're better than we are. And so it's very easy for us to, you know, to think, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm good. Look at all this stuff I do or whatever, you know. Um, God must be really happy with me. And then, you know, and then God comes along with his law and is like, actually, it's the exact opposite of what you think and probably worse than what you, what you think. The reality in your sinfulness is that you are poor, wretched, pitiable, naked, and blind. You know, and it's, it kind of reminds me of, was it? Is that John Napoleon Dynamite? No, oh. that's not not what I was thinking of. It it does remind <laughs> me of Napoleon Dynamite just a little bit though. Um, in John chapter nine, I th- I think it is in John nine, when Jesus heals you know the blind man and and he's cast out of the synagogue. Maybe I've been the the wrong account of the blind man, but I think it's in this same account that Jesus says to the you know to the Pharisees that you know if they didn't think that they saw clearly and that they were right and righteous, they would have no fault. But he basically says to them, but because you say we see, you know, your fault remains because they thought that they saw the truth of God's word so clearly. They thought that they were right, that they were righteous in their own eyes. And in their pride, they said, yeah, we are the ones who see not like these, you know, damnable Gentiles and tax collectors and this blind man, you know, who either he or his parents must have committed some terrible sin. We're not like them. We see. And Jesus says, you know, to them, because you think that, because that is your estimation of yourself, 
your guilt remains because you are actually blind. And you could give the same description here. They're blind, they're naked, they're pitiable, poor, wretched, and they don't even realize it. They think that they got all the fancy garments on, but all they are is bruised, battered, wretched, naked, and they have nothing. And so um, Jesus really just, you know, it's like the emperor has no clothes, right? Parading around in all your sinfulness, but you're the only one who doesn't see it, right? And so Jesus takes the blinders off, right? Here's what you are in yourself. And again, not because, you know, Jesus gets his kicks out of doing that, but the whole point of the exposure is that we might see clearly, yeah, yeah, God, you're right. That's what it means to confess, right? To say the same thing as God. You're right. I am poor, wretched, miserable, pitiable, naked, blind. I need to be clothed by Jesus, right? And my eyes open. And so the purpose of that exposure is that we would repent and be clothed with Christ, which he picks up with uh, the, the bind of gold and and garments, uh, getting garments from Christ that clothe us and cover our shame and our nakedness and so on. Yeah, ben, that's, that's huge, especially in connection with the verses that came before and thinking back to how they were taught to me as a kid, right? You better be on fire for Jesus, so God will love you, right? And where does that leave you? That leaves you in despair, right? <clears throat> leaves you in despair. But the point of this is, is repentance, right? It's, it's Nathan to David, you are the man. I have sinned against the Lord. You know, it's to, it's to call you back to repentance and faith. And that's such a huge, just world-changingly different thing. And I think, too, um, something that's important to point out is that it's not the wealth that Jesus here is saying. It's not, it's not because they had money. You know, a lot of times I hear a lot of misinterpretation of um the what is it the rich young ruler where jesus says it's much easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle and for a rich man to enter the kingdom of god mm-hmm. and here i want to point that out too like it's not the wealth that's the problem you know it's it's what it's the reliance that they had on the wealth over the lord okay so like i don't want people to think like having money or even being rich or having wealth is the problem because it's not. It's literally that second part of this passage that Jesus is really pushing back on. The idea of them saying, I am rich, I have required wealth, and then right here, therefore I do not need a thing. That's the wrong attitude to have because we always need the forgiveness of the Lord. Whether you are rich or poor, um, middle of the road, any of that, we all need that same forgiveness. And so that's what Jesus does better than anybody else, is that he has the ability to point out, here's where you mess up. And I point it out because I love you. And I point it out because I want you to know that I'm, I want to forgive you and that I died on the cross so that you could be set free from your wretchedness, from your poorness, from your blindness, from your nakedness, all of those things Christ wants to set free. And he did that on the cross. And so it's not the wealth idea. It is that you thought you didn't need the Lord, that the problem is. 
Yep. That's a good, it's a good thing to point out because Jesus isn't, isn't criticizing physical, you know, attributes and material, you know, lack or um, possession, but a spiritual condition. Right. Well, after that <clears throat> very serious condemnation there in verse 17, uh, Jesus gives some, some good advice. He tells, tells us to buy tells the church there to buy from him. Um, how do we buy things from Jesus? That's a weird phrase in my brain. So this, this makes me think of uh, Isaiah 55, where it says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. A good connection there with what we were talking about earlier, right? And he who has no money, right? Here's what you're saying, Mike. Oh, how do we buy from God, right? I don't have anything. If I'm poor and blind and naked, I don't have anything. How could I buy anything? Well, he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And it's this beautiful picture of grace. And and uh, it's, it's kind of hilarious to me that God is setting it up like a transaction here uh, where he's, you know, telling you to to go through with your end of it, but your end you can't do and you don't do and he does it all. Right. And it's just, it's, I think the hu almost humor or irony of it just all goes to um, amplify our view of, of God's grace and how rich it is, how generous it is. It's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. You can think of the imagery of, you know, of the beggar, right who how does the beggar have whatever he or she has by being given it from someone else right so so the idea there you know again is we don't as a what is was it rock of ages it says nothing in my hand i bring right so our hands are empty right because we don't have any any real riches or or anything good that we could bring to God by which he would say, here, you deserve this, or here's a fair transaction. I will give you this because you have brought such great gifts to me, but it's open-handed and God out of the abundance of his grace fills our hands again and again and again and again and again. You know, I really feel like I'd connect better with that illustration, Ben, of that song rock of ages. If you could sing us, um, you know, the, nope. the melody of that. <laughs> Are you sure, Ben? Matt? Nope. Matt? Oh, oh. I'm going to wait for Ben. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't only one of us have like a degree in vocal performance from Penn State? That one. Yeah, it's the one who's trying to get everybody else to sing. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know who that is. Yeah. Nor yeah. do I think that there's any relevance there. <laughs> All right. Sure so. I know. Come and buy without price. Come and receive uh, what is graciously given from the Lord's hand, which you could never earn for yourself, right? First thing he says mm -hmm. is buy gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. You know, you're actually poor, but come and get this gold from me so that you may have riches. What, what, is, the, what is the imagery here with the gold? It's pure. It's going to be the most valuable, right? No, no, nothing fake or um, 
deceptive about it, right? Or cheap, you know, no, no parts of it that are hiding anything lacking. It's like a complete, uh, or it's a, it's a true amount of wealth that's being offered here. I don't know how else to say that. Um, yeah, it's kind of like the idea of, uh, of like a quarter, you know, if you, if you look at a quarter, you'll notice how it's like silver on the outside, even though it's not really silver anymore, it used to be. But then if you look on the corner of it, you'll see that there's like a copper inlay around the inside. And basically, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. It's not. It's not like we took a rock and dipped it in gold and gave it to you, and it's just coated in gold. It's literally a solid piece of gold. What you have is is what it is. Mm-hmm. The purest form of it. Which I guess like for us is what? 24 carats, right? Isn't that what the purest form of gold is on earth? 24 so do we need to pick it up and bite it to test it? <laughs> oh, totally, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and with, with our riches, you know, it doesn't matter how much money makes it into our bank account. It's not coming with us when we die, right? Mm-hmm. But the riches given by God are, are eternal, right? Something that lasts, a treasure uh, stored up for heaven, not just for today where we can have moth and rust destroy. And it'll be, you know, according to Solomon, given to some fool after we die who will squander it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's interesting that God wants us to be rich. But he's not talking about earthly wealth, like you're saying, Mike. He's talking about a spiritual wealth, an eternal wealth, the the wealth of heaven, the storehouses of God that will last for eternity, right? Mm-hmm. That he gives to his sons and daughters. Pretty amazing. So many gospel metaphors in this text. Jesus also tells us to come and buy white garments. You know, that white garment thing is something we've hit before and we're going to hit again in Revelation. Um, especially, is it Revelation 7 with the saints whose, whose robes right. are white, um, washed in the blood of the Lamb? So it's that, that beautiful mm-hmm. picture of being clothed in righteousness and an alien righteousness, not your own, but the, the righteousness of Christ. Um, and it covers the shame of our nakedness. That sounds yeah. good. So that you know, we can jump right back to Genesis here, you know, and Adam and Eve sin against God, right? And they realize that, that they're naked. And what do they try to do? Well, they try to clothe themselves, but their clothes are pretty worthless, right? Um, and so what does, what does God do? Well, he clothes them when he gives them the promise that Jesus is coming. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And then he clothes them and he covers their shame and he covers their nakedness. Um, and that's, and that's a theme that's carried throughout, you know, scripture of God clothing uh, his children. And, and we could jump you know, right ahead into um, to St. Paul in Galatians chapter three, that all who have been uh, baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ in the way that, that the language is there is have been clothed with Christ, right? So in, in our baptisms, we are given, you know, the covering of Christ's righteousness, right? And then we come again, you know, into Revelation to so many times we see that's, that shows up again, that, that white robe of, of righteousness with which God clothes us and covers our nakedness, covers our shame, covers our sin. And all we have, oh, I skipped one. We could, you know, in Zechariah, 
you know, Joshua, the high priest has dirty, filthy garments and Satan is there accusing him. Right. And God says, ah, wait a minute, takes off the, you know, the dirty clothes and he puts pure clothes, pure garments on Joshua and says basically to Satan, what is there now to accuse? Right. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the, you know, the image here is that our spiritual nakedness and shame is covered by the perfect righteousness of Christ. And he gives that to us uh, in our baptisms, as St. Paul tells us so very clearly, that we have that robe of righteousness of Christ that covers all of our sin and all of our shame, and God sees it no more. And this is really great for us to hear, too, because as we continue to struggle with apathy and sinning and being lukewarm and all of these problems, because we're sinners, right? We continue to struggle and fail and fall on our faces. And do shameful things and everything. Um, we, um, you know, we need to remember these messages from Scripture about this. That when we are saved, when we are declared righteous, it's not because of us and how righteous we were, but it was because we were clothed with Christ, right? So that when God looks at us, He doesn't see our shame but he sees the perfect white righteous robe of Christ. Um, and, and we, we still in this life until, until we are uh, united with the Lord um, in the end, we, we still struggle and we still under that robe are a sinner. Right. And it's, we still have not been um, made just um, in, in that way. That's not where our salvation uh, happened or, or, uh, were, I, I guess, uh, we don't want to confuse justification and sanctification language here too, is what I'm saying. So we are declared just, even though we are not. So we are given that robe of righteousness, even though we are unrighteous. And so we're clothed with that. And so that's, that's good to know, good to remember that we need to continue to repent and hold on to faith in Christ, so that we continue to be robed with Christ, even though we struggle with sin. Um, and and that, can, that we can have total assurance of our salvation. Um, and we do want to ask the Lord to change us and daily to make us uh, more and more holy, to sanctify us. Um, and and we, we ask that uh, in our daily repentance uh, as well, right? But this picture is so so wonderful because uh, because of how much we sin and struggle with these shameful things. That even this uh, this righteousness of Christ is being offered even to us. Now the next thing, Jesus. Is, Hold on, wait, wait, wait. What do we what? think about this cartoon? I was shared this cartoon the other day. What do we think about this? Can you guys see that or no? Yep. Yes. Yep. What do you think about that? So we've got a cross here that says righteousness and God's looking at the cross and that's what he can see. Somebody's hiding kind of behind it in the shadow of it, holding a sin sign. And so God's not seeing their sin, but, but the righteousness of Christ. I think yeah. that's, yeah, I think in... Um, I don't know if there's any problems with this, but the, I think that's kind of what we're saying is that in, in view or that not that God doesn't realize our sin actually, 
but what he's looking at as the judge is the righteousness of Christ that we are clothed with when we, by faith, are, are clothed with Christ in, in baptism, trusting the promise of God for our forgiveness of sins, then what he's looking at is, is the righteousness of Christ, um, which I think is represented there by that cross. And, um, and so that's an amazing thing for us. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? My initial reaction is this. I reserve, I reserve the right to uh, change my mind later. But yeah, initially, <laughs> it, it looks good. All right, so the next thing Jesus encourages the, the church there to buy is a salve to anoint their eyes so they can see. Uh, as I was interrupted talking about Laodicea, did we talk about the medical stuff there? Matt just mentioned that, that yeah. there was a, a medical school there that had like, ointments and stuff for eyes and ears yeah that's a funny word to say isn't it ointment <laughs> <laughs> i never thought about it but now yeah, so, it. No. so this you know certainly brings to mind too you know you know jesus you know spitting in the ground making you know mud picking it up anointing the eyes of the blind man you know telling him to go you know, wash and so on, and you'll see, right? So Jesus is opening the eyes of the blind, but again, not just strictly on a physical level. He certainly did that. Um, but he is curing spiritual blindness by bringing the light of, of his word. And so if we notice here, you know, the Laodiceans are saying, I'm, you know, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. And then Jesus says, actually, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked, Right pitiable and wretched right and so then he answers that with each of these you know these gifts kind of answer that you are poor i'll give you pure gold pure riches pure wealth you know you are naked i will clothe you you are blind i will open your eyes and so you know in our sinfulness we are all those things that jesus said but in his grace and his mercy he does all of those things he gives us true wealth he clothes our shame and takes our sin away and he opens our eyes that we may truly see and so he he has all that the Laodiceans actually need. And so he calls them to himself, to repent of their sin, to trust in him, to receive all of these true spiritual gifts from him. Yeah, I don't want to go down this trail for too long, but I do want to point out that verses seven, 17 and 18 are a perfect representation of law and gospel. Like when, when you read scripture and we're, we're encouraged to read scripture in light of both law and gospel, you know, what, <clears throat> and I can't help but see that in 17 and 18, where 17 is like, you had this, you thought that it was that good. It's not, it's absolutely terrible, but what I have is great and I'm going to give it to you. Um, and, and I think that that's a really good representation of what the law and the gospel does in our lives as Christians. And notice then too, that these remain totally distinct from each other, which is so important with law and gospel, right? That they didn't do anything between 17 and 18 to make him give them that gospel. They are offering nothing good in this scenario and he is offering them everything perfectly and totally good for free yeah and if you want the connector it's 
the word of God inviting, you know, come receive these things. Right. And so in that, that uh, word of God of invitation is the very power of God to bring faith Mm -hmm. and bring people to himself. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny that we haven't even gotten to the most popular famous (laughs) verses that are maybe the most controversial here yet. (laughs) I know. And we've we've about hit our hour too. Yeah. We're almost there. We are. And so after that huge setup of having a guest on, I don't, maybe we won't get there, but we're going to try our best. (laughs) I think we'll get there. I think think we can do it. We can. Yeah. All right. So verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Like it, the first part of 19 sounds very obvious, right? If I, if I love you, I'm going to discipline you and, and, you know, reprove you. I'm going to correct you. I think about when I was in seminary and my son was, was very young. He, uh, he loved, you know, playing with outlets, plugging things in and unplugging them, which as a child, that's a great way to get electrocuted, right? Because you don't know what you're doing. Right? He was like, what, two years old, one, two years old, little... And so there was a lot of, there was a lot of discipline. There was a lot of correction. There was a lot of, of, you know, just like parenting my son because I love him and I don't want to kill himself, him to kill himself with electricity. Right. He hated every minute of it. He hated it. He bawled. He, he got mad. He would hit, you know, he would yell at me, daddy be back, which, you know, I would leave and I'd say, all right, I'll be back. So he picked that up. He just wanted me to leave the house so that he could play with the electrical cords and kill himself, you know? Um, but when you love someone that you protect them, even if they, even if they hate it and Seth hated it, but he's alive today. So I think it was a win. Right? So, but, but why is it as adults, we forget that and we forget that God actually loves us. And so maybe sometimes when we're being an idiot, there's going to be some discipline that we're not going to like, why do we forget that's a thing? I don't know. So we don't want to be kids anymore. We don't want to be told what to do. We we had enough of that when we were kids and now we can stand up for ourselves a little more and we're, we're not going to take it from anybody. You know, I think the older we get, the more stubborn and, and unrepentant, unbelieving, you know, it's, I think it's, you know, part of the reason that we have the picture of childlike faith, right? That where they actually receive uh, nourishment and discipline to some degree, even though they too will not always be thankful or push back. But I think we just get worse and worse as we get older with that. Yeah. And in, in verse 19, we really see here, you know, the whole point of Jesus' harsh words to the church in Laodicea, right? Um, the purpose, his desire is that they repent and in repenting, they are spared the eternal fires of hell. Right. Um, so that they will not indeed be spat out of his mouth in judgment. Right. And so, you know, this is, this is why one, we need to hear God's law. We, you know, we need God to hit us with his hammer. Right. So that, so that we may repent. And also this is why, um, I think why James, you know, can write, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds, right? Um, because God uses those things to, um, you know, to make us more like Christ, to sanctify us, to curb our sinful nature. All of these things are good to bring us again and again to repentance. And so even though we don't like it in the midst of it, we can, we can say, you know, hey, God loves me because he's disappointed me, right? And this is for my good. 
And it is with that call to repentance, right, that we kind of roll into next for, into the next verse, into verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So a lot of times when we hear verse 20, it's kind of pulled out of the context of the rest of Revelation 3, right? And very often this verse is, uh, is about evangelism or it's used in that way, right? Yeah, a lot of times it's presented as if, you know, Jesus is speaking to the unbeliever, saying, I stand at the door and knock, and, you know, if you open the door, well, then you'll be saved. And we confer to it. It's taken as this is us speaking of initial conversion. Um, however, we need to, you know, we need to remember the context. Jesus is speaking to his church, right? He's speaking to believers, to saints. He is not, um, he's not speaking to a pagan crowd. Right. And it comes right on the heels also of those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So repent. Right. So here is Jesus calling to repentance, right, to his Christians. Right. And so the context is very important. This isn't, you know, room full of pagans. Jesus saying, hey, I'm knocking at the door. I can't do anything till you get up and open it. You know, it's you Christians, my children. I'm knocking at the door here. Repent of your sin. Come and fellowship with me again and not be spat out of my mouth. <laughs> you mentioned children here too. And when we think about discipline, we think of like Mike's example too, the, of a father and a son or father and a child, right? And, and that's family language. That's love language stuff. And he even said that, that, that he disciplines the one he loves. And so those are his children. This is like the prodigal son kind of situation here. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and so um, also the picture from before too, is that um, maybe they are on the verge of lukewarm or they already are lukewarm, but um, he's warning them so that he doesn't spit them out of his mouth he has not spit them out of his mouth at this point. Right. So now you could argue that maybe that there are the, that in talking to the, you know, physical or church of Laodicea, that there were some unbelievers in their midst or some fake believers, whatever. Um, um, and, and sure the gospel is, is being spoken to them as well here. And, and hopefully they also repent and believe and receive these gifts. But I think it is important to recognize that primarily this is being spoken to the church, as Ben said, to saints and children of God. Yeah. And, and to just to note the language of, you know, Christ eating with us and us with him uh, brings to mind, you know, in this present age, the, you know, eating and drinking of our Lord's body and blood in the Holy Supper, right? That he gives to us for the forgiveness of our sins. And so Christ does indeed dine with us and he invites us to, to eat uh, with him. But it also brings uh, the imagery of the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is coming uh, when our Lord returns at the close of this age, where we will sit at our Lord's table and eat with him and him with us for all eternity. And so it is that great picture of fellowship uh, with, with Christ, uh, him and his body, him and his bride, eating and drinking together for all, 
even now, but for all eternity. So with this picture then, with the, this being two believers primarily, um, what is going on with him standing at the door and knocking? One of the things that um, that had been kind of taught to me or the impression I got anyway was with this with this kind of evangelism picture of this, the emphasis was kind of like, I control my fate because I control whether the door is open or not. So I can keep him out or I have the ability um, and the power to open the door. And it, it was kind of used to basically, we could call it, I think, decision theology, um, is a catchphrase for that kind of uh, doctrine which then is emphasizing really the ability of the person to choose Jesus, to choose salvation for themselves. Um, and, you know, uh, in, well, in scripture, and I, and I think, I think we can say all the way back soundly in scripture, we see that that's not a good uh, understanding of what happens with salvation. Luther also, though, wrote Bondage of the Will about this, really, which is a really strong rebuke of that kind of position, uh, which he goes through scripture and shows that, um, that we do not have that kind of ability, and we don't even desire to, um, to seek after Christ or to choose him, to open the door to him. And I don't think that's really the picture of this metaphor either. Um, not, it's not putting this back on us as if we have some great ability to uh, choose our salvation and, and to have Jesus come in. And again, this isn't about initial conversion anyway, but the picture here then uh, that I might argue for uh, that I've heard uh, some about is that the emphasis here is more on what Jesus is doing, that he has come to you. It's like he's traveled all the way to your house to the, the door of your heart right mike has a picture of this that he drew for me i don't know if you want to show mike your artwork here uh i requested i commissioned a special piece of art let's see it for this i I told him i couldn't really draw i couldn't really draw people but i could draw cows so but then i asked for it to be a cows at the door the the heart <laughs> the door of my heart yeah that is in no, uh, so in no way a jesus. commentary about jesus <laughs> that's not jesus that's just a cow that happens <laughs> to also be in the picture uh not quite as good as the paintings people often have in their house of this scene uh, but um but the picture i think is of jesus being really the one who is doing this this great and gracious work um to come to you to to pursue you um, and, and that he is right there near to you and he's knocking. Um, and it's a really a loving picture too, because he wants to come in and eat with you. And when we connect that with these other gracious and wonderful things that Ben was mentioning, the Lord's supper, where we get to partake of Jesus body and blood and, and, and to, um, receive the forgiveness of our sins and to think of that great feast in heaven uh, with the Lord um, and and all of the, those blessings, I think the picture is clearly here about what God is doing in ministering to us and what He wants to give to us, not about what we have the ability to do or to control. And and when He's 
saying he wants um, us to open the door. That's the the action. If you could put one there uh, on our behalf, that we are to do is to repent, which again is not a glorious, powerful work of ours, but a humble one, where we admit that we are wretched and pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, and and we ask him to forgive us and and to restore that fellowship and to come in um, and and eat with us. Um, and so, again, a picture of, of the grace of Jesus, I believe, here, and a call to repentance. All right, let's keep on moving. We got two verses left. Verse 21, the one who conquers. Uh, we've discussed this a whole bunch of times. Uh, but to the one who conquers, Jesus will grant him to sit on his throne um, as he also conquered and sat with his father, on his throne. So what are we talking about with the uh, sitting on the throne with Jesus there? Uh, I think it's similarly referring to the fact that the saints of Christ share in his rule and his reign, the saints reign with, with Jesus. Um, everything that uh, Jesus has earned and, you know, and gained through his, work of redemption on behalf of sinners, uh, we share in that by virtue of being united with with Christ. And he gives all those things to us. So we share in his eternal life. We share in his righteousness. We share in his rule and his reign as well. And the letter to Laodicea closes in the same way as the other ones have. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Repent, believe, all that good stuff. Any closing thoughts, guys? We um, made it through the letters, guys. I, yeah. <laughs> Only 10 more years to finish the book. <laughs> uh, just uh, a quick concluding thought as we, as we wrap up this section on the letters. I hope that it's uh, apparent from the variety of situations throughout these seven letters that... Um, that the messages that Jesus has to those churches are applicable to the church at any time in any place, no matter, you know, where we are in the history of this, of this world, the, the situations are similar enough and varied enough that at any time in any place we can say, Oh yeah, Jesus is speaking to us too in each of these letters to these churches. And so it's not restricted to this time or that time or first century or what have you. It's applicable to the church of all times and all places, um, Jesus' words to uh, each of the seven churches. All right, Nelson, all right, closes up in a word of prayer. Lord, we come before you and, and confess that uh, we have been ungrateful for the many blessings that we've received in this life and, and, uh, and especially the gift of of Jesus for us. And, and Lord, I know that uh, even for those of us who believe in you, we struggle with apathy, uh, every one of us every day, uh, with, with many other sins and shameful things. And, and we often are tempted to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, and to think we're fine when we're really not. And so I pray that as we hear this really uh, scalding uh, warning, that we would, uh, we would repent, Lord, that we'd realize that we have not 
been uh, salt and light or hot and cold water to our neighbors and that uh, instead we are in a position where um, we uh, are making you sick with our sin and our unbelief and lack of repentance and and so Lord we're sorry for that and we ask that you would forgive us we thank you for Jesus and that you freely offer even for us poor uh, and us poor people you've offered to us to buy of your pure gold and to get these new clean garments uh, these gifts of Jesus grace and and I thank you for those gifts and I just pray Lord that you would uh, cleanse us and clothe us and and feed us that you would come in and eat with us we thank you that you are so uh, forgiving and patient with us for not uh, quickly spitting us out of your mouth when we failed but really seeking to lead us to repentance that we might not uh, enter those flames of hell uh, for eternity, but instead to come in and sup with you and to be blessed with all the riches of heaven uh, for eternity. What a beautiful picture. And, and even as we think too, that, that you are coming soon, we pray that we would always be ready, always be about your work, uh, and and looking forward to that day when you come again, Lord Jesus. Be with us now as we go. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Nice work, y'all. All right.